Our gospel lesson today is found in Matthew chapter 1. We are reading from verses 1 through 17, but for the sake of expediency and many pronunciations that are extraordinarily difficult, we will read verse 1 and verse 17, (laughs) and then reference all of it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Father, this morning we come weak and dependent. It's only in your light that we see light. But we also confess that you are the fount of life, and that fountain flows to us. And so we ask that you would illumine our minds and give us understanding, that you would make us to know your ways, that you teach us your paths. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. If you've ever questioned my pastoral competence, today may confirm all of your suspicions. After finishing up a series in Abraham, today we begin a series that will take us through the remainder of Advent into the Christmas season, and we're going to work from a genealogy. It's Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. It's the way that Matthew opens up his gospel as he gives the family history of Jesus, a family tree. It can look just like a register. It can look just like a history lesson. Many people don't really make it that far into their New Year's reading plan. When they resolve to read the New Testament, they arrive here on the first page and get lost in the names and places and think this is just totally irrelevant, and by January 2nd, they're done. You may be thinking, Chuck, if I really desired to do this, I would just go on Ancestry.com and I could learn everything I need to know. So why would you ever spend time in genealogy? What could it possibly mean for us, especially during this season? When we slow down just for a moment and take a closer reading, we see past the difficult names and the people whose lives seem very distant And we begin to notice some features and some patterns to this family tree. And this reveals that far more is actually going on here in Matthew 1. Far more than simply the recounting of a birth order. For instance, we need to consider the way that this genealogy begins. In verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is an odd way to begin a genealogy. It's an odd way today, and it was an odd way then. And it is to arrest us because it points something out. That a genealogy does not put the last entry first, but yet Matthew does. And he's drawing attention to something that's profound for us. That this entire story that's being told in this family tree is about one person. And that person who is last is actually mentioned first. And so it's a unique form of genealogy that's directing us to someone. Second, there's also a typical pattern in the genealogy. It's one that was anciently used. X was the father 
of why. It happens over and over. If you're familiar with the old King James Version, it was X begat Y. Over and over and over. It is the rhythm of the genealogy. But as you read these 17 verses, there's also some odd exceptions. That pattern gets broken up. And it's important to look at the breaking of that pattern because it wasn't just a mishap. But rather what we see is that there's some intention in that. And it's directing us to what God wants to communicate. Something that God wants to communicate and reveal to us. And third, you'll see also in these 17 verses that there's a scheme. In verse 17, we find that there's a neat chronological arrangement in the genealogy. There are 14 generations from Abraham to David that we're told of. 14 generations from David to the exile that we're told of. And then 14 generations from the exile to the birth of Jesus that we're told of. Now, of course, we know from the history of the Bible that these generations were not clean and neat. It was not expected in the ancient world when you said that X begat Y, that that person was technically your direct father. That person could be your great-grandfather, or it could be your great-great-grandfather, because technically it's true. And we know from other genealogies in the scriptures that there are places where certain generations are omitted, and that Matthew was doing this in order to arrive at these numbers of 14. And he is constructing the genealogy very intentionally around this number 14, 14 from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus. And friends, all of this very intentional structuring, the omissions to the pattern, the pattern itself of 14, all the things that are happening here, it says in very loud words with very sharp edges that this is much more than a registry This is much more than just a historical record. That what we have is God communicating with us a great deal about what's going to unfold in the gospel that lies ahead of us. It is God revealing his purposes and his plans. What will happen in Jesus, who Jesus is, and what will be done for us. And so this morning, ahead of coming to the Lord's table... We'll focus on three specific things, and we'll be unfolding more over this next week together. Three specific things from the genealogy that we'll continue to build on. But these are the things that Jesus comes for. Because he comes to save will be our first point. He comes to rule, and he also comes to claim. And so first, considering that the genealogy reveals that Jesus comes to save. If you look at the very first sentence of Matthew's gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Later on in chapter 1, we are told that an angel came to Joseph. He was told not to despise his fiancée Mary, who had become pregnant. Rather, he was to marry her, And that he was to name this son who was coming into the world, he was to name him Jesus. And then the explanation for that is given in verse 21, because he will save his people 
from their sins. This is why Jesus comes. He comes to save his people from their sins. So he doesn't come for the high and mighty to retain their positions of power by using religion to oppress and hold them in place. That's not why Jesus came. He doesn't come to share a few nice moral principles that we can clean ourselves up by and somehow earn ourselves into God's presence. Or he doesn't give us a few nice moral principles to help us live our best life now and be actualized. He doesn't also come to share with us about how to make the world a better place. Jesus' name simply means that God saves, and he comes to save and deliver his people from themselves, from our sins, from our wrongs. This is what the angel says. And this becomes clear simply in a quick review of the genealogy, because when you look at the people who are surrounding Jesus, the one that he is both the header and the footer of, it's not a list of heroic and virtuous people who pulled it all together and did everything right. It's just not simply the way this genealogy gets told. But rather, what we see is a rather tawdry story. A story of people who did some great things by faith and also had tremendous and tragic compromises. There's the story of Jacob, which is a story of deceit and striving in which Jacob bested his brother Esau. There's the story of immorality and self-concern in the case of Judah that you find in Genesis 38. And what we see there is that Judah had moved out of the land of Canaan, that is, out of the land of promise, and he went down. It's the same description that we have of Abraham when he left the promised land to go down into Egypt. It is a story of compromise and of a man who was given not to, the faith, uh, not to faith and trusting in God. There's the story of adultery, murder, and scandal in the case of David. Then there's the story of idolatry and child sacrifice in the case of Manasseh, who was known as one of Israel's most wicked kings. All these people in Jesus' family tree, things that would make you blush, things that you would be embarrassed of, not things that you would normally publicize. Right here in the public record, this genealogy reads as a comedy of errors. It's not a hall of fame. And what we see there is the purpose of God because he's communicating what Jesus comes into the world to do. He comes to save people like this. This great comedy of errors, this mess of a family. People sent into exile. People who had no concern for God. And he comes to save people like them. He comes to save people like you. He comes to save people like me. He comes to save. This is what his name means. But secondly, as we look at the genealogy, we see that he also comes to rule. Back in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. We're working back in time now. David the man, after God's own heart, who God made a covenant with. And in 2 Samuel 7, you could also look in Psalm 89 or Psalm 132, you find the contents of this covenant, that one of David's sons would sit upon his throne forever, and that he would be heir of the promises that had been previously made to Abraham. So though it was hard for many to appreciate, 
Jesus throughout Matthew's gospel is called the son of David. The claim is apparent that Jesus is the one who was coming, who had been promised to take up David's throne. He was coming to rule, but people couldn't see it. It was not transparent. Who was he and what kind of rule was he going to exercise? And that's the question for us. What does his reign look like? It is amazing as you canvas Matthew's gospel and see how many times the name Son of David comes up. It appears quite a lot, but on multiple occasions, it's in specific contexts where people are in dire need. If you turn to Matthew chapter 9, as you come to verses 27 through 31, Jesus was being followed by two blind men. And this is what Matthew tells us, they cried aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And so they're coming to Jesus in their need, in their physical brokenness. A result of Adam and Eve's great rebellion against God. All the corruption and decay and pollution of the creation. And they're coming to Jesus, the son of David, saying, will you help us? He says, do you believe I'm able to? You've called me the son of David. Do you now believe I can do this? And the answer, yes, Lord. We believe. Then later in chapter 15, we find a similar encounter. There's a Canaanite woman who asked Jesus to heal her daughter who was oppressed by a demon. She cries out, and actually the verb tense is one of an ongoing crying out. She was crying out. She was following after Jesus, crying out to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. And so once again, we're learning what it looks like for Jesus to rule and to reign. And then in verse 26, there's this very odd response that's off-putting for many. Jesus says this to the woman, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And you see, because this woman was Canaanite, in fact, she was from near Tyre and Sidon. She was a Syrophoenician woman, and so she was outside of Israel. She had heard about Jesus and was coming to him, but she was not part of the covenant people of God. And it was common in the first century, and it was not a compliment. There's no way to soften the phrase. But for Jewish people who are part of God's family to refer to Gentiles as the dogs. There's no trick here in which I can tell you in the original that it gets better. A dog was a dog. They were not pampered or taken care of as your dogs are. They didn't go to vets. They howled at night and they prowled around. It was not a pleasant thing to be called a dog. Jesus picks up that term in verse 26. But then if you look in verse 28, Jesus actually heals this woman's daughter. And so the big question is what happens What happens between verse 26 where Jesus basically passes on a cultural insult and says, no, you can't have the blessings that belong in Israel. My mission is to come to this place and then that the blessings would overflow from Israel to places like yours. 
But in verse 27, we see exactly what happens. After Jesus says that she is not worthy to have these blessings, it's not right that the children's bread be thrown to the dogs, look what she says in verse 27. Yes, Lord. She agrees with him. This is remarkable. Yes, Lord. She doesn't get offended. She doesn't claim herself a victim. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. This is remarkable. If you think about what it would be like to sit there and watch this conversation. She's insulted, told that she's outside of Israel. It seems that he's not going to help her. And then she says, yes, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus says he's not seen faith like this. And her daughter is healed. We see it once again in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Two blind men cry out to Jesus, the son of David, that they would recover their sight. Have mercy on us, son of David. And all of this makes it clear about who the son of David is. That yes, he's the one who comes to take up Israel's throne. And he comes to bring blessing. He comes to rule. But his rule is not about serving himself. It's not about protecting his own power. He comes actually in the service of others. He comes to heal, to renew, and to restore that he comes into God's good creation, corrupted by sin and broken in half by it and torn apart, filled with his injustice, filled with his poverty, filled with his sickness, filled with his disease. And what does he come to do? He comes to reign. He comes to rule. And that rule involves the healing of all of that. He comes not in the name of his own interests. He comes to restore the world to its order, to its bounty, to its goodness, and to its flourishing. And he brings that restoration to those people who say those simple words, yes, Lord. And it's proper for us to think today and to ask ourselves the question, do we say yes, Lord? Are we responding to him in that way? Because this is where the power of the gospel breaks in to those who say yes, I believe. And so he comes to rule. And finally, he also comes to claim. Back to verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We arrive all the way back in history in Abraham that we've seen over the past weeks as we work through Genesis chapter 12 to chapter 22. And the genealogy tells us that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Genesis 12, Abraham is promised land, he's promised blessing, and he's promised descendants, that there would be a seed of Abraham. And that through those descendants that all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth were to be blessed was the promise. Abraham's family would be a blessing to all of the earth, all the nations. And this part of the genealogy once again makes it clear that Jesus is that descendant, 
that yes, Isaac was and the many children that were to follow, but there is a very punctual fulfillment, a very specific one in Jesus, that he is the promised descendant, and in him the nations would be blessed. This is part of the story that's being told. But it's not the only way. The genealogy gets interesting because we said that there was the pattern. X was the father of Y. But four times in these verses, in these 17 verses, that pattern takes on a different shape. Four times we find that women are mentioned. A mother is included in the genealogy. If you follow with me in verse 3, we are introduced to a woman named Tamar, who is the mother of Perez and Zerah by Judah, who we've already mentioned. It's a story of incest and is complicated and dark, but Tamar, in order to participate in the covenant people of God, is drawn into this family, and we're introduced to her as the mother of Perez and Zerah. In verse 5, we meet Rahab. She is the mother of Boaz by Salmon. Rahab was a Canaanite who lived in the land who helped the spies. Then in the same verse, we meet Ruth, the mother of Obed by Boaz. Ruth was a woman accompanied with grief, had lost her husband, moves back into Israel, and marries Boaz and becomes part of Jesus' family tree. And then in verse 6, we learn that David was the father of Solomon. And then a curious inclusion, by the wife of Uriah. This refers obviously to Bathsheba, but her name doesn't even appear. She simply is called the wife of Uriah. And so we have Tamar, we have Rahab, we have Ruth, and now we have Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And you have to ask the question, why does the pattern break? And why are these four women included? And what exactly do they have in common? And the commonality that runs through these four women is not just that they were engaged in odd behaviors and moments of injustice and immorality. But the commonality that underlines each of their experiences, they were not Israelites. They were outsiders to the covenant family in the Old Testament. That they were Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth is a Moabite. And Uriah and his wife were Hittites. They were outsiders who by faith had joined themselves to Israel, embracing God's promise to bring blessing to the nations through Abraham. This is what the genealogy was communicating, that this had always been God's purpose through Abraham and is now being fully realized in Jesus to bring blessing to all those nations. And it's important to see this in the first words of this gospel. In Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. The blessing that was promised to Abraham was to flow to the nations. Because if you consider the very last words of Matthew's gospel, it all becomes clear what the intent is. Jesus, after rising from the dead, gathers his disciples. They fall at his feet and worship. And then he says this, 
All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is what Jesus comes to do. He comes to save sinners. He comes to rule. And he comes to place his claim upon all the nations. That this is what is promised to him as the descendant of Abraham. And so his disciples were to go, therefore, and to make that claim on his behalf. He would be with them. But they were to make disciples of all those nations. This is what he commands us to do. As he draws people from every tribe and tongue and every corner and class of the world. As he brings people who are sinners and broken. But in him righteous and whole. Sins forgiven. Made right with God. Baptized into his name. This is the blessing he comes to bring. And it's the claim he comes to execute. And so, friends, in the strange genealogical archives, this registry of names that can feel so remote and off-putting, and what exactly are we to do with it? We see that God weaves for us a tapestry, telling us of the one who has come, telling us of the one who rules, telling us of the one who will return, of his purposes and plans of who he is, of his mission and his purpose. He comes to save, he comes to rule, he comes to claim. And so to all of that, let's have the boldness to say yes, Lord. Let's pray.